How many of you knew that last one? Oh, but a handful. Uh, That hymn uh, is actually taken from a poem, which I think is 15 stanzas in length. We didn't think it would be too wise to sing them all this morning, so we, we focused in on three. But it was penned by Samuel Rutherford, who lived in the 1600s in a little town called Anworth, in what is known as Galloway, Scotland, southwest Scotland. He was quite the, quite the pastor, quite the theologian. As a matter of fact, he was one of the Scottish representatives at the Westminster Assembly and was a tremendous theologian. If you're looking for a book to read, if you are looking for some nighttime bedside reading, something for the nightstand, you pick up that little Puritan paperback, The Letters of Samuel Rutherford, and the Lord will richly bless your soul. One of my favorite lines from the poem is as follows. As I mentioned, he was a pastor in a little town named Anworth, and so he penned the following, part of, part of the hymn we sang this morning. If one soul from Anworth meet me at God's right hand, my heaven will be two heavens in Emmanuel's land. We see something in, of his pastoral heart and his sense of urgency as it concerned his own flock, his own people. And I'll tell you, I look out this morning. And there are several of you over whom I worry, over whom I do spend time praying and wonder, will I see them in Emmanuel's land? Do they really have a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Since moving to Texas, we've received notice of two deaths. One was of a of a neighbor, we lived beside George um, for uh, Gord for for five years, and um, received word that he had he had passed away. He was, I think, Gord was close to 80 years of age, but a man who never wanted to discuss spiritual things. Uh, the life of the neighborhood, one of those guys that would do anything for you, happy-go-lucky attitude toward life. And yet a soul who most certainly is not in Emmanuel's land. And the other was just a couple of weeks ago, a a fellow I knew years ago, my brother-in-law's brother, dead at 43 years of age. Another soul who will not be in Emmanuel's land, old or young. It's reminded me of the Lord's words uh, this night. I will require thy soul of thee. Time is short, isn't it? Time is of the essence. And I do worry for one or two of you. Do you know Christ as your own? Is your hope that everlasting glory of peering, upon the wonderful attributes of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, if one soul from Anwath meet me at God's right hand, my heaven will be two heavens in Emmanuel's land.
We are going to return this morning to John 17 for one last time, corporately. I certainly hope it won't be the last time for you individually. Uh, John 17 should be part of your staple diet, a regular intake, a wonderful portion of God's Word. John Knox, reflecting on John 17, wrote, This is the place where I cast my first anchor. And that should be true of each and every one of us. Let me read the entire chapter for us. We are not going to review the contents of the entire chapter. We're going to focus in specifically on a few verses. But I think it would be well worth our while and effort to read it and to hear it publicly. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence With the glory that I had with you before the world existed, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. That you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known 
that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now this morning, it is our privilege to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We are going to partake of the loaf. We are going to partake of the cup in due course. In preparation for that, as we hear God's word proclaimed this day, seek to draw a direct line in your mind's eye between what you hear from Scripture and what we behold in the emblems before us, the loaf and the cup. And, and I pray that the, the emblems, the, the sacrament, so to speak, accompanied by the word of God this morning, might truly draw our hearts into closer communion with our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in John 17, you will remember that the Lord Jesus begins with a prayer for himself. We see him. We hear him as he prays to his father, his holy father, his righteous father. He prays on his own behalf, making two requests. First of all, he prays for an acquired glory. What do we mean by that? We mean that he prays for a glory that was not formerly his. He is asking for something new. In effect, he is asking for a glory that is associated with the work that he is about to accomplish. He has fulfilled all righteousness on behalf of his own. He is about to lay down his life for his own. And he prays that the Father would glorify his work. And we know, praise God, that the Father has heard and has answered the Son's request. We see that clearly, for example, in the book of Acts. And we turn to Acts chapter 2 and we hear the Apostle Peter preaching and teaching on Pentecost. And there Peter quotes from Psalm 110, if I remember correctly, the most often or frequently cited Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And there in Psalm 110, we hear Peter quoting, citing that reference where the father clearly says to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Oh, the father has answered his son's prayer. He has bestowed this glory upon him, whereby he has raised him from the dead. Not only that. He has caused him to ascend on high. Not only that. He has seated him at his own right hand. Not only that. But he has designated all authority to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby he reigns and will do so until every enemy, every last vestige of rebellion is made a footstool for his feet. But he prays, secondly, for an essential glory or an eternal glory. This isn't something new. This is something that has always been his by virtue of the fact that he is the eternal word of God, the eternal son of God. But because of the incarnation, that eternal glory has been clouded by his humanity. It breaks through on the Mount of Transfiguration, 
But by and large, for the most part, that eternal glory, that essential glory that is Christ's, by virtue simply of who he is, is obscured, it is clouded by his humanity. But now the Lord Jesus prays that that glory might be restored in its full splendor. And praise God, the Father has heard and has answered that request. We can turn, for example... To the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is a testimony to that fact. We need go no further than the first chapter. And the Apostle John is in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he hears a voice. And he turns to see who is speaking to him. And he sees a little baby in the manger. No, he does not. He sees one whose eyes are like a flaming fire whose hair is white as wool, from whose mouth protrudes this two-edged sword. And John falls down like a dead man. You see, it was a manifestation. It was a, a glimpse, but a glimmer of the eternal glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father has answered his son's prayer on his own behalf. But as we move on in John 17, we see, we catch this glimpse of the Lord Jesus praying for us, praying for his people, praying for his bride, praying for his church, praying for his own, praying for those whom the Father has given to him. And what does he pray for? Father, make them rich. I didn't see that in there. Father, uh, make their lives easy sailing, free of any problems. Please, Father. Father, keep them from all discouragement and disillusionment. Father, keep them from opposition and affliction and persecution. Father, may, may, may their lives just be a, a bed of roses. Clear sailing, smooth sailing, easy. Christ does not pray for any of that. And if I think that is what the Christian life is all about, I am delusional. And far from God's word and what true discipleship is all about and what it means to forsake self, self self-denial, to pick up my cross and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ makes four requests. Father, keep them, keep them, protect them, preserve them from whom the world and the evil one. Father, sanctify them. Make them holy, your bride, your people. Father, unite them, unite them with us. Communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And by virtue of that union, may they be one with each other. Father, glorify them. Here's the climax, Father. Grant them that beatific vision. That day when they will be where I am, they will see me as I am. They will be forever changed. And that will be the beginning of eternal bliss. That's what he prays for. Last Sunday, we considered the first two of those requests, safety and sanctity. And now we're going to finish up with the last two, unity and glory. Let me repeat John Knox's thought On John 17, this is the place where I cast my first anchor. This is the place where I cast my first anchor. Friend, this is what you need more than anything else in life. Right here. 
these truths as expressed from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. If I, if I, would, if I would ponder, meditate upon these truths, like, a, like a tasty, savoring a tasty morsel in my mouth, I would find them to be a daily delight to my soul. This is what I need to hear my Lord and Savior praying for me. I had someone come to me last Sunday, advanced in years, and with tears in the corner of her eye, say to me, you know, in all my life, my Christian sojourn, I had never heard that before, that the Lord Jesus actually prays for me. He prays and intercedes. And the Father hears and grants these great and glorious petitions whereby he keeps us and sanctifies us and unites us and glorifies us. And so for our, for our soul's delight this morning, unity and glory. We begin with unity. Follow along as I read again for us, beginning in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, his immediate disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, the entire church, that they may all be one unity, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. When we hear the word unity, uh, we get off the tracks immediately because it's so misused and abused today. Uh, Normally within Christian circles, when we hear the term unity, it's used in one of two ways. Uh, Normally it's used in reference to institutional uh, unity. That um, we should all, as Christians, just join one big, huge institution, uh, one huge hierarchy. And, and there should be this external conformity and, and part of the same organization. So it's organizational or institutional unity. And at other times, perhaps more common in our immediate circles, we hear people talking about unity in the sense of, of, of cooperating together. What we should do as Christians is lay aside our difference Just relegate ourselves to the lowest common denominator, Jesus loves us, and then work together. And and for evangelism, or for for missions, or for for this, or for that, or for the next thing. There may be some some merit to that second understanding of unity, but it is important for us to grasp, important for us to understand, that the word is never used in that sense in Scripture. And yet that's usually how Christians use it today. Today. When Scripture speaks about unity and this union in particular, the Bible intends that union that exists between Christ and his people by virtue of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And by consequence of that union between Christ and his people, his people are in unity. Whether they realize it or not is irrelevant. Whether or not they recognize it is inconsequential. It is as it is that because I am one with the Lord Jesus, because you are one with the Lord Jesus, before I ever moved down here in January, Allison, Laura and I, I was already one with you and you were already one with me. Why? 
Because we are one with Christ. That is unity. And in these verses which we have just read, the Lord Jesus gives us three features of this unity. Three truths or facts, extremely significant facts. The first concerns this unity's pattern, pattern. Look again at verse 21, that they may all be one. Now, here's the pattern. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. There's the pattern. Now, bear with me here. There are four key unions in Scripture. There is a covenantal union uh, before the foundation of the world. Uh, God entered into covenant with us to redeem his people. Uh, I will be their God and they will be my people. That is a covenantal union. There is secondly in Scripture what we call an essential unity or union. Not essential as in, as in necessary, essential as in essence, a unity of essence. And we, we mean by that, obviously, the Godhead, God triune, Father, Son, Spirit. Three persons in one essence. It is an essential unity. There is thirdly in Scripture, and if I haven't lost you, I'm going to lose you with this one, a, a hypostatic Union. I, I hesitate to use that word because I can't even spell it. But a hypostatic union refers to what? That union that exists between the two natures in the one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. His divine nature, his human nature. They are not commingled. They are not mixed. They are not confused. They remain distinct in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is in Scripture a fourth union, a mystical union, whereby Christ is one with his church, one body, united with him through the Holy Spirit. Now, what the Lord Jesus is saying here in the context of John 17 is that the essential unity, the union of the Godhead, is actually a pattern of the mystical union. And so if we want to learn about the mystical union, where can we look? The Godhead, the essential union, the relationship that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit. Christ says, I am in the Father. The Father is in me. No mixing of the persons, and yet one substance, one essence, one being. And so what do we learn? What do we learn about this mystical union, our union with Christ and therefore with each other as we gaze upon the essential union of the Godhead? Well, consider the following with me. The union between Father, the Father and the Son is a mystery, isn't it? It ultimately defies explanation. Well, so too the union between Christ and his bride is a mystery. Paul tells us that, makes it clear, Ephesians chapter 5, that a man shall leave his father and his mother, he shall hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. 
I tell you, says Paul, this, 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 this mystery is profound. And yet I am speaking in reference to Christ and the church. It is a mystery. Secondly, we learn this, that the Holy Spirit is the bond between the Father and the Son. And so, too, the Holy Spirit is the bond between Christ and his church. Thirdly, the Son lives, and he makes this clear in John chapter 6, the Son lives the same life as his Father. And so, too, we live the church. We live the same life as Christ, our head. Next, the Father and the Son They love one another. And so too the church and Christ love each other. The union between the Father and the Son is indissoluble. It's eternal. It cannot end. Likewise, the union between Christ and the church is indissoluble. It will exist forevermore. The Son glorifies the Father. So, too, the church glorifies Christ. The Father honors the Son. So, too, Christ honors the church. That is the pattern. That this wonderful union that we have been brought into, whereby Christ has grabbed hold of us by the Holy Spirit, we have believed in Christ, that we look to the Trinity, and what we behold there, please, please be careful. The Lord Jesus is not saying that the mystical union is identical to the essential union. That's not what he's saying. He is saying it is patterned after the essential unity. And so we can gaze upon the Godhead and the relationship that exists eternally between Father, Son, and Spirit. And there learn something and gaze in wonder. At this relationship, this union that exists between Christ and his bride. The second feature of this unity is its result. Verse 21, toward the end of the verse. So that, here's the consequence, or here's the result. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Again, we need to tread carefully here because On occasion, we will hear people say, look, if we would just get together and cooperate and work together, well, this would this would be the answer to Christ's prayer. That's not what Christ is praying here. This is not a belief that leads to salvation. This is a belief that vindicates the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus, during his earthly ministry, claimed, I and the Father are one. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. What was the world's response? They nailed him to a tree. But you see, Christ's claim is now vindicated by the union that exists between him and his bride, thereby confirming the union that exists between him and his Father. You see, in this union, if properly understood, we behold something that is supernatural and that defies explanation. We see something that nature cannot produce. Cain and Abel. What happened there? 
Cain murdered Abel, and ever since, it has been brother against brother. The type of union depicted in Scripture between Christ and His church is something that nature, blood ties itself, cannot produce. Something that politics can't produce. League of Nations couldn't do it. And despite their best or worst efforts, the United Nations can't do it. They will never produce anything near what is described in the Word of God and how people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue are brought into, incorporated into the body of Christ and are brought into a union which brings them closer than any blood tie. Politics cannot do it. And I suppose even religion, loosely defined in and of itself, cannot do it. Judaism is, by and large, a Jewish religion, ethnically defined. Hinduism, to a great extent, is an Indian religion, ethnically defined. Islam, to a great extent, is Arabic. It is ethnically defined. Christianity is the only true world religion without any ethnic definition whatsoever, transcending all borders, transcending all cultures, transcending all ethnic groups, and incorporating into the body of Christ this wonderful plethora of people from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue. This will be an eternal testimony confirming vindicating Christ's own claim. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And what I now do with my people, making them one with me, confirms it. And this belief to which the world will be brought to is not corrective. It's not salvific. It is punitive. They are condemned by virtue of Christ's work, which confirms every claim he ever made concerning his own person and identity. The third feature concerning this unity is its basis. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. That raises two obvious questions. What glory is he talking about? Well, he can't be talking about his eternal glory. No matter how special we think we are, uh, God is not going to impart to us his godhood, his essential glory. The glory that is here in view is that which is later referred to in verse 24, that everlasting glory, that which we will behold in glory when we behold the veil is fully removed. We see the wonderful attributes of God in Christ. That is the everlasting glory that Christ has given us. Well, that leads to an obvious second question. When did he give that to us? How has he given it to us? By way of promise. He has acquired it. He has attained it by virtue of his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. It is a given fact. He has acquired it. It is his possession. He will bestow it upon his people by promise. And it is this great and glorious hope, this great and glorious promise that unites us. It is our common cry in Christ. You go in your mind's eye to Ephesians chapter 4, and I think that's the road Paul is leading us down there when he says there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope 
that belongs to your call. Everlasting glory. The means by which Christ will consummate this great union with himself. So three features. I trust the Spirit of God will grant us understanding regarding these three. It's pattern, it's result, and it's basis. Now let me ask you a question. Why is this encouraging? I hope you've come up with at least one answer to that question already. Why is this encouraging? Why is this, this union with Christ, union with one another, why is this a great consolation to the soul? I'm going to give you five reasons why. There are others. Time doesn't permit me to belabor this point this morning, but I want to at least give you five. I'm going to derive some help from, from John Flavel, who was particularly insightful on this point. The first reason is this. The union between Christ and us is intimate, extremely personal, unbelievably close. So Flavel writes, husband and wife are not so near. Soul and body are not so near as Christ and the believing soul are near to each other. Uh, We refer to uh, people we know as acquaintances. And then when we spent some time with them, they're friends. And then we have close friends, uh, really close friends. Even our relatives, we refer to as distant relatives, close relatives. A Christian, the closest relationship you will ever know, the closest relationship you can ever experience, the most intimate relationship you can ever experience is with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is one with your soul. That is encouraging. That, that is particularly encouraging to the lonely, isn't it? It's particularly encouraging to the widow or the widower, to the fatherless or the motherless, or even those people who find themselves surrounded by others yet living and enduring a very lonely existence. To know that in Christ, They have the closest, most intimate relationship possible. Oh, what strengthening food for the soul. The second feature of this union that is encouraging is this. It is immediate. And so Flavel writes, every member, the smallest as well as the greatest, you can put yourself into either category as you see fit, hath an immediate condition with Christ. In other words, there is no intermediary. Christ is our intermediary between God and and us. But insofar as our relationship with Christ, there, there, there is nothing that stands between great or small, poor or rich, black or white, man or woman, child or adult. We have an immediate relationship with the Lord Jesus, whereby he has made us one with him. I'll tell you something, that's where I derive all my self-esteem. Huge discussion nowadays. The problem is, we try to to buttress this self-esteem by looking at self. Uh, When I look at self, it doesn't help my self-esteem. When I look at Christ, and the fact that he has made himself one with me, there's all the identity, there is all the self-esteem I need, self-worth I need. 
That is encouraging. It is particularly encouraging for the abused, for the misused, for the neglected, who have had any inkling of self-worth dashed or crushed, who have been misused by others to a great extent, to a lesser extent, to know that their self-worth isn't determined by what others have done to them or by what others say about them, but their self-worth is with the fact that the eternal word of God has taken you to himself and by the Holy Spirit made you one with him. That's a little encouraging. It's very encouraging. The third feature of this union is as follows. It is eternal. So Flavel writes, death dissolves the union between husband and wife, friend and friend, soul and body, but not between Christ and the soul. The bands of this union rot not in the grave. When I die, I will kiss everything goodbye in this life. Everything I have held dear Everything that has been close to me, whether it be a relationship or not, it is all gone. But here is a relationship that transcends death. Not only transcends death, but transports me to delight. Well, that's encouraging. It is particularly encouraging to the dying. To know that they are one with their Lord and Savior. And to know that their hope is rooted in Him and in Him alone. And that there is nothing, nothing in heaven or on earth that can sever that relationship. It is an impossibility. Therein lay all my hope insofar as the grave goes that I am one with Christ. The fourth feature or characteristic of this union is that it is honorable. To be a servant of Christ is a dignity. But to be a member of Christ, how matchless and singular is the glory thereof. Yet, it would be outstanding enough for Christ to make me his servant. But to consider that Christ has made me a member of his mystical body. I enter into a whole different sphere, don't I? When I add to that my own sinfulness. When I add to that and compound it with my own stubbornness and rebellion. That the Son of God has made me one with him overwhelms the soul. We sang it earlier, that hymn by Samuel Rutherford. Let me read the stanza again for you. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I will not gaze at glory, but on his pierced hands. Oh, the Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. One final word of encouragement it is this. Uh, this union is, is mutual. Whatever troubles, says Flavel, 
or distresses befall, Christ is mine and I am his. What happens to me happens to Christ. Have you ever thought about that? The union is such that he knows my hurts. He knows my struggles. He knows my temptations. He knows my afflictions. I am not alone in this, but I have one who not merely watches over me, one who not merely walks beside me, one who not merely carries me through, but one who is one with me. The Holy Spirit unites us to such a fashion that the Lord Jesus knows and feels our infirmities and strengthens us by the Holy Spirit. What, what an encouragement, and in particular, what an encouragement to the afflicted, to the downtrodden, to those who are in those valleys and there is no end in view to know that the Lord Jesus is right there with them, going through it with them, their rock, their anchor, their fortress. Oh, this is rich encouragement for the soul. I can only guess that's what was going through Knox's mind. When he penned those simple words, I've shared them with you already. Let me share them again. This is the place where I cast my first anchor. Unity. We are one with Christ and one with each other. The fourth prayer request is for glory. It begins in verse 24. As I glimpsed at my watch, I realized I'm going to have to go quickly. I'll, I'll try to just focus on the really major points here and leave you with sufficient substance to think upon at your leisure. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Why? He tells us to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Three questions quickly. What is this glory? It is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his, the glory of his, of his attributes, uh, the glory of his, of his power and wisdom. Yes, most definitely what we call his natural excellence. It is the glory of his goodness and his faithfulness and his loving kindness. It is the glory of God made manifest in Christ's glorified humanity. This is what we will behold. That leads to a second question. What is this seeing? What is this beholding? What does that mean? Well, we can see Jesus. We can see Christ in one of three ways. We can see him with the eye of flesh. Lots of people did that while he was walking on earth. All sorts of people, countless numbers of people, saw the Lord Jesus with their physical eye. That's one way of seeing. But there's a second way of seeing. It is seeing with the eye of faith whereby we actually see with the spiritual eye, the eye of faith, who the Lord Jesus is. The significance of what he has done and we trust in him. And so although we do not see him in the first sense today, we don't see him physically, we don't see him with the eye of the flesh, we do behold him with the eye of faith as he is revealed in his word. But you see there is thirdly the eye of glory. See, the first, we see carnally, the eye of flesh. The second, we see what's called fiducially, the eye of 
faith. But the third we see beatifically, the eye of glory. When we will behold the Lord Jesus and he will impart to us to the fullest capacities of our souls his glory. And we will find our full rest and center in him. It's the beatific vision. The third question, quickly. Why is our happiness found in seeing Christ? Very simple. Listen, listen to these words. Give attention to the relationship between these, these words. To see Christ with the eye of glory, beatifically, is to be conformed to his image. When we see him, we will be like him. Meaning we will be holy. Every last vestige of sin will be gone. To be conformed to his image is to love him. All that inhibits our love, all that impedes and squashes our love at present will be gone. And so we will see him as he is. As a result, we will be conformed to his likeness. As a result, we will love him to the fullest capacities of our soul. But to love him is to enjoy him. It is to find our satisfaction in him and in him alone. That's what the Lord Jesus asks for. That's his request. Job understood something of it. After my skin has been thus destroyed. Yet I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Why is that encouraging? Well, I had a lot here. (laughs) A real lot. Let me just sum it up quickly. Uh, Thomas Manton, in uh, meditating upon this verse, wrote, Every verse in the Scriptures is sweet. Every verse in Scripture is sweet. But this one should not be read without some ravishment of heart. To consider what it is that awaits us. Uh, Perhaps the poets, I had had stanzas from a couple of poems here. Perhaps this is the best way to to bring it all together and to express the heart. Listen Listen to these words. The poets can express it far better than I can. Father of Jesus. Love divine, what rapture will it be? Prostrate before thy throne to lie and gaze and gaze on thee. Or we sing this one. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast. But greater far thy face to see and in thy presence rest. Christ has prayed it. The Father has granted it. It just awaits us to enter into it. Our Father, we do ask that you would give us eyes to see this morning. To behold the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus. To behold the truth of your word. To behold all that you have prepared for those who are in Christ. May our hearts be warmed. May our souls be strengthened and encouraged. May our minds be overrun with these glorious sights and these rapturous thoughts. And we do pray that you be well pleased to 
impart your glory to us by the Holy Spirit who has made us one with the Son, and therefore one with the Spirit and one with the Father. And in you, God, three in one, may we find sweet communion for our souls. And we ask it for your eternal glory. And in the precious name of Christ, amen.